Hi everyone. Before we start off this next episode, we just want to thank the next set of our Kickstarter backers. Jake, will you do the honors for the first one? Sure. Benjamin May. Alex Schillick. Our Alpha Horus supplier, Laura. Rom, our favorite arch engineer, also known as the Robin of the arch team. Brandon Schillick. Mindy Kaplan. Teague Zaharia. Monica Fisher, who makes the best granola in the world, and her dog Mochi. Does that mean she makes her dog Mochi? Um, no, her dog's name is Mochi. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. And lastly, Cheviot Value Management. Your money should be invested intelligently by a manager with experience in all types of markets. The team at Cheviot Value Management is serious about what they do, protecting and growing the value of your investments. Spend a moment at Cheviot.com. That's C-H-E-V-I-O-T.com. They're pros. I've known them a long time, and to learn more about what their Warren Buffett style investing can do for you, visit, visit Cheviot.com. You should not speculate with your financial future. That's C-H-E-V-I-O-T.com. Now, let's get on with the episode. Today we'll be talking with my friend Michael, who was a software engineer for a few years at a company that sold software to local governments. This was Michael's first developer role, and it'll be interesting to hear the take from a newbie when he realizes that the company he joined is going nowhere. It's not just the newbie perspective for me that I'm uh, so intrigued by. I also want to hear from Michael because he'll be the first engineer that we've had on the show, and I have this connotation about engineers that they're very oblivious to what's going on in the company that they're working at. And I sort of feel like that if an engineer was on the deck of the Titanic while I was sinking, they'd be oblivious if the Titanic had cool code or used a hot new language. Yeah, I think that also resonates with me, Jake. I could totally see that. But I think you're not giving them enough credit. I think they also care about the perks of like the snacks in the kitchen, the beverages, all that stuff. To be fair, the only reason why I come to work every morning is for the snacks and beverages. So I can't really uh, ding them for that. You know, we often ask our guests about this, but what's been your favorite uh, kitchen snack in your career? Well, a few years ago, I worked at a Fortune 500 company, and they really didn't have much of a kitchen as far as snacks goes. Actually, they had zero snacks, but they did have Talking Rain, which is like a seltzer, kind of like LaCroix before LaCroix was big. And they also had chocolate milk cartons, like little individual cartons so you can enjoy chocolate milk with your lunch or your breakfast. Did you ever just mix the two together? Uh, surprisingly, no. Um, do you regret that decision now? No, I do not. I think I'm okay with not having mixed uh, Talking Rain with chocolate milk. But maybe I'd be entertained to see someone else try it. How about you, Jake? What was your favorite snack perk at a company you've worked at? So I once worked at this place where once a month for breakfast, they'd bring in these little tiny donuts, uh, powdered sugar on top, and then filled with Nutella. They were so good. I'd have like three or four of them. Um, and I really think that if they had them once a week instead of once a month, I'd probably still be working there. Well, wow, that sounds delicious. Well, let's see if Michael had anything that good in his kitchen. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I guess just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about the SAS graveyard that you were at? Yeah, it was at a, uh, a government performance uh, SAS company. So it was a company that was building software and, and selling to you know small governments across the country. Um, and I was there, it was 2016 to 2018. And how big was the company when you joined? Yeah, so they were somewhere around 125 when I joined. So it's still pretty small. I mean, you knew everyone there. Mm-hmm. And did you have a sense of the revenue at all? No, I had. So I'm an engineer, and I have no idea what the revenue was at any time that I was there. Oh, 
Typical engineer. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you first find out about, like, where were you before? Like, how did you end up at this place? Like, what were you doing before ending up at this company, and how did you find out about yeah, it? Yes, so this was actually my first gig as a software engineer. Um, I, I had been doing biomedical engineering on the East Coast, decided to switch to software, and so I came out here and did, like, a boot camp, App Academy. Um, and my offer, actually, I got my offer on the day that I graduated from App Academy. Oh, so I'd been cool. looking at, like, companies on Hired.com and... Uh, had been, you know, trying to my best to negotiate. This is like my first real job offer. Um, and so I got that job offer. I turned it down. And then after a month of, of looking for jobs, I was like, actually, that was a pretty solid company. I really like, you know, what was going on there. So I went back to the, the engineering director and I was like, hey, what, what do you think? Is the, uh, is the job still, still out there? And he said, uh, he said yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to be slightly less money now. Um, that you're coming back, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you could have the job. So so I wouldn't work for them. So what were the things that you you said you had other offers or saw other companies? What did you what made you think like oh actually I do want to go back to this place? I honestly I think it was just the interview process. That it was they were very friendly people. I enjoyed talking to all of them. The only reason I turned it down was just that. Uh, it was that like you know that wisdom of of never take the first offer, right. and because it was literally on the first day that I had graduated from App Academy, I was like I can't I can't accept this, so I kept pushing them to give me more time. Mm-hmm. But the engineering director was being real; he was real hard on on like you know you have till this Friday and that's it, and so he wouldn't give me any extra time. So I ended up having to turn it down. Yeah. Oh. And how did you, uh, when you went to App Academy, what were your, like, what did you think you wanted to do? Like, did you have a, did you have a goal going into it? I did. So I started a company on the East Coast um, in the diabetes pharmaceutical space. I ran that for about three years and uh, we moved at a snail's pace. It was very, very difficult. We were doing a lot of drug discovery and early, early um, discovery. So it was a lot of animal work and we were running around studies. So I really wanted to come out here learn the skill set I would need to do that again, but within the tech industry. Because my vision was that you can just move really quickly and, and, and change the world uh, super fast out here. So that was the goal, was I wanted to come out here and, and eventually start a company. And so coming from App Academy, what was the hiring process like at the company? Like, was it what you expected? Did, did it seem very formal? Um, it, it seemed... It was honestly exactly what we would practice. you just whiteboarding a lot of whiteboarding problems, like uh, super technical algorithms problems. Um, I remember this one like really technical engineer that would come in and he would just kind of write really quickly on the board like a, a bit of the problem and then he would be like, go, and he would leave and he'd come back in, you know, 10 minutes later and kind of like cross something out that I had done and, and he would correct me and then he'd leave again and he just, he seemed really busy and, and intense. That was like the most intense part of the interview. Everybody else was like super, you know, present and Interesting. That's a fascinating interview technique. <laughs> he, well, he, so I actually became very, I'm, I'm actually to this day very good friends with him. His name is Sergey, and he works just down the street, in fact. And uh, and he, honestly, he just was like probably fixing something that had just exploded. Right. And that's why he was like in and out. It wasn't like a, you know, a personality thing or anything. Or a trick to see like, how this guy no, reacts no, by walking. No, no, no. He was, he was definitely putting out a fire. And so you decided to come back to this company and take the job with it. What, what made you excited about the opportunity? Um, I think the space was really interesting. Well, well, I should say 
One of the other things that turned me off to this company is before I said no the first time, I did come in. The, the engineering director convinced me to come in and have pizza with the team, you know. And so I came in and I met the CEO and I sat down with the CEO and, and everybody kind of cleared out and let me have this one-on-one. And the CEO just kind of did like use these intimidation tactics to sort of make me feel like uh, he was like, what, you don't want to be in healthcare anymore? Like I could give you the name of 10 healthcare companies and I'll send you there right now. What makes you think, you, you know, you don't even have a CS degree. And so he like used these tactics to kind of like pressure me and it completely turned me off. And I was like, man, I, I don't know about this guy. So I ended up saying no. And then I think after like a month of searching, I was like, I'm not going to work with the CI, CEO. Like he's, you know, I, this is a 130 person company. I don't have to deal with him. So, um, so I ended up taking the job. But I think one of the things that, that excited me about it is, I mean, the space was amazing. I really loved the, the energy and the, in the um, like it was really vibrant in their offices, uh, you know, typical startup stuff, full kitchen, bar. There was, we had a, there was a billiards room. There was a foosball room. There was a music room, which was really amazing. I mean, they had tons of guitars and other instruments in like a soundproofed room. And you could just kind of go in there whenever you wanted and, and turn up, you know, you could turn up an amp and no one could hear it. Awesome. Now for our listeners, uh, no, uh, Michael walked in today with the guitar. So I'll <laughs> yeah, it was a huge deal. Yeah. Was there one thing that you wish you knew, kind of looking back at that point before you you decided to go with this company? Hmm. About the company in particular, I mean, I think what I wish I had known was how much. I mean, for me, like it was just lifestyle stuff. So it was it was like the commute. I I didn't know how much I would not like commuting. You know, it's down in. Uh, South Bay, or not South Bay, but it's it's down the peninsula, um, and so I wasn't aware how much that would affect me. I was still new to the Bay Area; I just moved here within you know a few months of taking the job. Um, another thing is like related to that. During my interview, they told me you know we're going to be opening up a San Francisco headquarters real soon. I wish I had known how cliche that is to say. Like oh. how how many companies say we'll eventually have a San Francisco office. And uh, for the whole time I was there, and then even after that, they never they never really got the office up. Um, eventually, I think they did start something up here. But gotcha, yeah. awesome. So you, you take this new job; it's mm-hmm. your first gig at, as an engineer. Yeah. You describe your first month for us. Yeah, I think I mean it's it's kind of funny, like the things that you you interview for, and then the things that you actually have to do on the job. I mean, the most difficult part for me was just figuring out how to use like collaborative software. Uh, like collaborative uh, software tools, right? Like like even just GitHub, you know. GitHub is something that when you're doing it in a collaborative environment, it's a very different experience than when you're doing it on your own project for, for you know, a portfolio project or something. So I just remember that stuff being really difficult and anxiety-inducing, like the code reviews and all of that and, like, figuring out the, the workflows for all of that. Um, Were people supportive, like, helping you, like, learn these things? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because when you switch careers, I was 28 by the time I got there and I had been like, you know, basically running my own with my co-founders running in my own organization for a while, but in a very different context. So one of the things that comes with that is I think people would assume that I needed less help 
And so I would get much less assistance than like you're just at a college engineer. But the funny thing is that they've actually got more experience writing software than I do. I mean, I've been doing this for a few months, you know, other than that, just as a hobby. Um, so I've often found in my career since I since I did make the switch late that I I would I would get less like um, you know like tutelage than the average like engineer. Gotcha. Were there any red flags in that kind of first month of going through of like oh maybe this isn't quite what I expected or? Okay, so there was one uh, there was one big red flag, and I think I didn't know it at the time too. My first day there, we had an all hands. Um, I'm getting nervous already. Yeah, yeah. I'm nervous. I'm we nervous. had an all hands, and the I, the questions were they were usually people would just spout up like they would just raise a hand. It was a very very like familiar environment. So nobody, I mean, now with companies they'll do like the anonymous questions on some sort of, uh, you know, uh, they'll have some software they're running it with. But people were very comfortable in this company. So someone just raised their hand, uh, and they said. Are you at all concerned about the enormous turnover in the engineering department oh. of late? <laughs> and I and I was like, oh wow, I didn't know and mention that, you know, obviously in the interview process. So I didn't know this, but there had just been a really big. Uh, they just let go their like primary, like their VP of engineering, and there had been a huge thing where they had to pull down a director from you know a different. It was working in a different headquarters somewhere else, um, a different office. And so there had been a lot of, like, shuffling of, of uh, engineering leadership. And, uh, I mean, the CEO's answer was something like, no, I'm not at all worried about that. You know, this is a tough company, and we wish people the best. But, you know, if they can't, you know, if they can't handle the heat, they got to get out of the kitchen. Um, it was something like that. And so then within a few days, there was a, there was a public, like, um, it happened in open. Like, this is like an open working space. It's like a, a warehouse. And there was a, a argument that, that broke out between all the engineering directors and the, like, interim VP of engineering. And they just went at it, like, out in the open with 35 engineers sitting around them. And they just were arguing out loud about, like, whether one department should eat, whatever, whether one team should even exist. And, I mean, it was so confrontational. And so for me, I just... I didn't know what to expect from a from a uh, a, comp- a tech company like this, so I just assumed, well, this is probably normal. I don't know, you know, maybe this, they're just very they're very open about how they how they feel about these things. Uh, but it was looking back, I mean, it was entirely inappropriate. The whole thing, I mean, it was a real like uh, power struggle. I think they were trying to figure out who would be the next VP of engineering, and all of them wanted that position. At that time, did you talk to your colleagues about, hey, is this normal or? No, I didn't even think I asked. I think I just assumed, like, this is, it's probably fine. Um, I would say there was one other red flag in the interview process. I didn't think about this until much later, but uh, one of the people that interviewed me that did, like, the personality portion of the interview, mm-hmm. um, he mentioned, he said something weird that I, at the time I just thought was just, like, social awkwardness or something. And he's just like, yeah, well, you worked, you were like a, you know, you led your own startup, so you'll probably be able to handle, like, the personal differences. And I was like, well, I don't really know what you mean by that. But I think what he was trying to say is there's just, there was a lot of clashes among the management at that time. Um, And I think he was trying to prepare me for that or something. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't think at any company I've been at, there's never been a public 
saying that maybe this department shouldn't exist in the open. Jake, has that been the case for you as well? No, it's never happened in the open, just behind closed doors. Behind yeah. closed yeah. doors, that's the norm is behind closed yeah. doors, as it should be. Um, and I guess kind of what was the relative funding, do you know, at the time that you, you joined that? Yeah, when I joined, I think they had raised somewhere around $50 million. Gotcha. Um, and while I was there, there was a round um, where we raised another, I think, 30, uh, 30 or 40. And then recently they've uh, added another 50, I think, 50 million. So over 100 million. But um, yeah, one thing that I guess, I don't know if this is a red flag, but like the investors changed, the lead investors would change. Um, and it seemed like we were never sure, because we were selling software to governments. It was never clear what, like, whether we were doing a, like, a public service, you know, and that's one of the things they use to get you into these kind of companies. They tell you, like, well, what we sacrifice in salary, we make up for in mission, right? You get to feel good about what you're doing when you come into work, um, and so sometimes, like, the the lead investor would be someone who is very much into like, um, like not nonprofit, but uh, just like public good. Was that a motivating factor for you to join this company? Was it a social good aspect? Yeah, I think so. I mean, so I came from a healthcare background and um, wanted, I definitely wanted to feel, I mean, I, the thing I would say then in interviews is I don't want to be building another dating app. Um, I think now it's, I, I build a dating app easy, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care as much about it now, but I think back then I did want more of a mission driven. Did your role at this company break you of your high like standards or just no, I think I went on to two more companies after that where I, I kept thinking I wanted to be like very mission driven. And I eventually I just felt like that was a cop out. You know, that's just a, a marketing or a recruiting technique for them. It doesn't actually change what you do day to day. You're building most of the same kind of stuff. Did in did the company, you know, while you were there and you were working, did they talk about, you know, on a particular feature, like about the mission at all, or was it always, you know, just about money, or what was the, how do they try and inspire you on a daily basis? Mm, that's a good question. I do think, I do think there actually was a fair amount of people there who really did believe in the mission. There were ex like uh, government officials mm-hmm. that worked there. Um, one of the things that they would do to inspire us, that's an interesting question. They actually brought, uh, Tony Blair came by one wow. time. Uh, if I start name dropping, I feel like it's going <laughs> to be obvious what this was, but, uh, Condoleezza Rice came and did like a fireside chat with us. So they would bring in people who were like super interested in what we were doing, um, to try to like inspire everybody. Um, and that was actually, I mean, that was great. And I do think, like I said, I think a lot of people there were inspired by the mission of like improving government. Um, so, you know, we've kind of gone through the, that first month. What, so as you were ramped up and you learned how to use GitHub and whatnot, <laughs> what were the, the projects that you worked on? I mostly worked on a, uh, a cloud service that allowed governments to, to build budgets. So I was building an app that uh, government officials could collaborate together on. So, um, yeah, it was very similar to like a Google Spreadsheets, basically. And uh, did you feel, like, proud about sort of the work you did on that? Uh, I don't I mean, in, <laughs> in retrospect, no, not really. I think at that time, you know, just shipping code to production was cool uh, and, and interesting to me. Um, just because you'd never done that before? Yeah, it was just cool to have it. But also, like, looking back at it, I mean, there was, there was no one using the software. Like, the, our, the number of users that we had was so 
minimal. Uh, I mean, you don't have that many people. Uh, you don't have that many local governments, first of all, but then people within that that are actually interacting with the software. So it's very hard to get feedback on like whether we're doing things right or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned about sort of why you want to get engineering is like that feeling of being fast-paced. Yeah. And you sort of kind of get an indication that wasn't the case. Was was that here where you realized that things don't move as fast as you want them to move? Um, well, I would say, yeah, they definitely didn't move as fast as they could. Um I mean, it moves. There's no comparison with like healthcare and building like a physical, like a drug. There's just no comparison about speed. But um, I joined just after they had launched like an initial version of this product, an MVP, and I think they had gone way too fast on that. And so, I mean, the looking at the code, it was like, and that you know, that's another thing about being a new engineer. You just don't know. You you look at this and you're like, man. I, did I not learn anything? But you don't know that, no, this is a mess. This is like, this is hell for an engineer to have to look at this code and figure it out and rewrite it. I mean, it was it was terribly done. And it was done so quickly um, with no thought to like building out the team and bringing in new people who had never seen it before, right? Were the people who had written it, were they still there? Or were they part of that um, down or, you know, reshuffling of folks? No, some of, the, some of the people that wrote it, like, uh, you know, they did it, they launched it, and they left and went to Facebook. <laughs> this was, like, literally just a launching pad for them to get to the next gig. And so, you know, as a new, someone new to engineering, and you're saying, looking at this code and thinking, like, oh, this makes no sense, how did you get and sort of go from, oh, what did I, didn't I learn to realizing, oh, this is actually just really bad code. How did that transition take place? I mean, some of that is just like subtle conversations you have with other engineers mm-hmm. and you say, hey, you know, maybe you could help me understand this this little bit here. And then they kind of let you know, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the guy who wrote this, he's, he's long gone and he, we did this in a week, you know, which also is a thing you learn. You start to learn like empathy for the conditions that engineers are working under, right? Like they don't have all the time in the world to make this to make this perfect. Did you, so you worked on the software, did you feel, what was like the biggest, besides just shipping something into production, what were the bigger accomplishments you felt during this time? Um, as far as like, I mean like typical accomplishments, like I, you know, I was promoted very quickly after joining. Mm-hmm. Um, very quickly after joining, I was, I went, you know, from being brand new on the job to interviewing engineers. So I think I was proud of that. I was proud of the fact that, that I was able to come in and, and take on those kinds of roles. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was still building up my confidence as an engineer, you know, so every little thing was, was a great accomplishment for me. Right. So you mentioned that you starting to get little hints from your colleagues that maybe things aren't perfectly good with the code. Overall, how did you get along with your colleagues? I mean, pretty well, actually. I mean, it, it was... Uh, as far as like engineering went, there was a, a pretty cohesive group, um, and and it w- there was a little bit of like the bro culture that you get, um, but overall, like I think people got along pretty well. We would eat together, and and uh, you know we'd go out together afterwards at, after work. Um, there was like I remember interviewing one candidate. Like the 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 whole like bro culture kind of bled over into like the interview process, and I remember one time. We had this thing that was not at all hazing. It was a hot sauce ritual. Uh, one of the older engineers who had been there for a while was really into hot sauce. And so when people found out about this, they would ask him and he'd bring out his hot sauce and he, they would, uh, he, would, they would, he would basically get them to try like the hottest hot sauce, like just a toothpick of it. 
And one time we were interviewing a candidate who was eating lunch with us, and they did this thing like in the cafeteria area with this candidate there. And it was just like the worst look for the company. Like it looked like this crazy ritual that we put everyone through, which it was not at all. But uh, that's what it came off as. I remember being a little bit upset about that. <laughs> did, they, like, did they end up joining the company? Oh, no, absolutely not. He, he definitely did not join the company. And I think, honest, I really do think that had, like, something to do with it. The hot sauce. Yeah. So was he pressured into doing it, or...? Well, they asked him, and people, like, kind of, like, faux-pressured him, right? But they, were, but they were actually pressuring someone who had just joined and was sitting with us. And so it was another new. It was another new hire that, or is it, it was an actual new hire that they were pressuring, not the candidate, but. Gotcha. Yeah. So it looks slightly better. A little bit. A little bit. Still Just pretty bad. Pretty bad. Yeah. Still pretty bad. So, so you have your engineering team that you're working with. Did mm-hmm. you have a, a product management team that you worked with, and how was that relationship, or how did you get your user requirements? Yeah, I would say that was probably another red flag of joining. Was I mean, this is a lot of companies though. Like we lost our product manager within a few weeks of me joining. And also the engineering manager that hired me left the company very quickly after I joined. So the so we were like hiring a new product manager as, you know, for my first six months there. Um, so we had another product manager that was kind of overseeing our product as well as, you know, the one that, that he was usually on. And did you interact with anyone else that sales, customer success? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. So they were trying to build like a more cohesive culture throughout the company because they were very discreet. I mean, the sales folks would be in by like 7 a.m. Engineers were rolling around 10, 11. So they were really trying to bulldoze that like um, that divisive culture that we had. And one of the the literal uh, dividers that we had was we worked in this huge warehouse that was like an open floor plan, you know. Uh, except right down the middle of it, there was one wall. And so those ceilings are really high, right? Like this is a huge warehouse. Um, and there's, so there's a wall right down the middle of it and just like this little tiny door. And so that was what separated the engineering bay from the rest of the, the company. And there was this incident where a salesman went into a, to a government and basically sold them a product that we didn't have. Classic salesman. Yeah. Sold them on something that was like maybe going to be on the roadmap in six months. And this was a big government, so this was like a big deal. And so there was this huge argument between sales and engineering. And the the fix was that they tore down the wall. We came in one day, and this wall that separated the, the warehouse had been torn down so that we could see you know, our sales counterparts uh, on the other side of the warehouse. And that resolved everything? No, I don't think that resolved anything. But, I mean, it was like, it was a metaphor, you know? And so, like, another thing that, another metaphorical thing that we did to try to, to try to bridge this gap was our CEO was very salesy, right? And we were missing a VP of engineering, so we hadn't brought that, that person. We still had this interim leader. So our CEO decided that to, to make everyone feel like, you know, we're, we're all on the same team, he would stop sitting with sales and he would come sit with engineering. So one of the great like ironies of this job for me was that I actually ended up sitting right next to the CEO because he came and sat in the engineering bay and this was the guy that I had told myself like I can join this company because I won't have to work with him you know and so every day he would come by and you know like high five me and ask me how I was doing Um, so we ended up being like very very close to each other like like you know geographically Did, (laughs) did your opinion of him change at any point or just get worse it got worse. It got worse. I, I mean, to be honest, like I think one of the things that started to turn this into like 
maybe I need to get out of here, uh, was my opinion of, of the CEO and sort of how he was running the company. Um, it seemed almost like it was a vehicle for his personal advancement, you know, and, and I once, I was reading a book that someone had given me as a, as a gift, and uh, in the book, like, one of the chapters was dedicated to our company, which I thought was weird because it's a pretty new book. It had been released since I had been at the company, mm-hmm. but no one had ever mentioned this book. So I brought the book in, and I, I handed it to my manager, and I was like, hey, have you read this book? And he's like, no, I never heard of it. I was like, do you know there's an entire chapter about our company in here? And he's like, no, what? And I said, do you know that the story of the founding of the company is completely, like it's a falsehood in this book? (laughs) It makes it seem like our CEO founded the company? And he's like, what? Are you serious? And so I like left this book on his desk. I gave it to him, right, my manager. And like I said, the CEO just sat a few desks away from me. So he was walking by, and he was like, uh, he saw this book, and he just asked my manager, "Hey, uh, where'd you get that book?" <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, you know, Michael gave it to me." <laughs> He's like, "Michael, did you you get a chance to read that book?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I read it." And that was just like a thing between the two of us that like no one else ever talked about it. No one ever told anyone that hey, there's a chapter <laughs> in this book about us. And, it, and I'm like, when there were news stories about us, when there was like a blurb, the whole company would know. And, and celebrate, so, hey, we're getting exactly. Crass. Yeah, yeah. And so the fact that this was like, and this is a popular book. If I told you the name of it, you would know it, uh, probably. And, but it had it had this like this revisionist history of the company <laughs> that made it seem like this, you know, guy in a garage who came up with this idea, uh, and in reality it was very different than that. Wow, <laughs> that's a good story. We haven't had that one on the podcast before. <laughs> so. You know, earlier you mentioned that you you know, didn't know what the total revenue of the company was, but did you have an overall sense of like how the business was doing? My uh, gauge for that was, you know, you would hear these revenue targets in our in our quarterly meetings, right? And inevitably, we would not hit them, um, and then there would be a whole there there would be a, a purge of the sales department quarterly, and that happened. I mean, that happened. I think like clockwork, every quarter you would just see a, a huge uh, influx of new salespeople and you just would forget that there had ever been anyone you know else sitting in those desks. So that happened a lot. And I think, I mean, one of the interesting things about this company was you're selling to governments. You need like the best salesman in the world. It's a really long sales cycle. It's a difficult, uh, It's they're just difficult entities to convince. They don't have a lot of spare cash lying around. But at the same time, the numbers just aren't that big. So you don't have the ability to retain like the best salespeople. But you do need like a lot of skill in that department. How big was the sales team? Um, I don't know, 40, 50? And so every quarter, 10 of them, 20 of them, how many of them would leave every quarter? I mean, I, I don't know exactly, but I would say half. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I would say, like, there was there was a huge, significant turnover, and it was, like, a deliberate thing. It was, like, you don't meet your, you know, you don't meet your targets. You're, you're kind of gone. So they, they were under a lot of pressure then? Yeah. There was also, like, the typical, and, we're, again, we're in a big open warehouse. We had a giant gong that would get, you know, rung every time there was, like, a sale. Um, we had a leaderboard that was, like, a live... There, there were like live TVs with like sales leaderboards mm-hmm. in the warehouse, so you'd just see the best salespeople like with their faces up there all the time. Did you and did engineering feel any of that pressure, or 
was it just like, oh, that's a completely other different department that's dealing with it? No, in fact, I remember thinking, like, how happy I was that no one's, like, counting the lines of code that I'm writing, you know? <laughs> like, I remember thinking how happy I was that there was just no, there wasn't, like, a direct measurement of my success, you know, because I, I think that would probably cause a bit of anxiety. Was there any accountability within engineering, or was it just like, oh, we're happy to have engineers, and so we'll, we'll just keep them around? You know, I, I don't know that there's any, like, quantifiable metrics that people use with engineers. I'm not sure. Uh, like at least at that company. Like even, even without metrics, though, is there a sense of like, oh, if I'm not doing my job, there's going to be there's going to be a price for me to pay, or is it like I can show up at ten, leave at three, and no one's ever going to do anything about it? <laughs> no, there is. There was there was accountability. Accountability. Um, I mean, one when something went wrong and there was like a, an incident, I think people would they expect that you're going to be online like fixing something if you if you were the the cause of it going down. Um, I do remember one specific conversation I had with my manager who, you know, and I was doing pretty good in the first few months. I was, you know, really, you know, I had this like chip on my shoulder that I was trying to prove myself as an engineer. Um, but after a while, I was like, well, I don't, this isn't like my, the, the end all be all for my career. Like I don't, I'm not super interested in what they're doing. Um, and I was, to be honest, like looking at other companies. And I remember this this conversation. They had just promoted me, and my manager, you know, he loved to take these like walks around the block. And we're taking a walk around the block, and he asked me, he said, "Michael, I noticed uh, that you don't take your laptop home with you." And he just kind of left it hanging, and I was like, "Yep, that, that's it." And he was, and like I think the the like implication was like, unless you, I don't know how we can see. I don't see you going much further in the company, unless you start taking your laptop home with you you know why you're coding at night after yeah. you leave the office yeah. you're working uh, off hours yeah uh, so you you mentioned you know, that you started looking was there ever a tipping point I mean you you, you kind of got your your sea legs under you you're now an, a real engineer was there a tipping point like when you're like okay I need to to get out of here or was it just accumulation of things um, I, there were a few things. I think honestly, the book thing was one of them. The 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 CEO having the chapter in the book without telling anybody. I thought that was really weird. And also, again, that it was like a revisionist history of the company it was very strange to me. Um, my mentor at the company, you know, the the person who hired me left within a month. The the person who was sort of mentoring me announced that he was leaving just before I made my announcement. Um, I think the biggest thing that happened was just, I mean, I, I started looking and I got offers in the city and the difference in salary was uh, was significant. And I remember telling the, the engineering director about that when I told him I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to leave. Uh, and he said, okay, well, we'd really love if you could give us 12 months notice. <laughs> I said, what? How? What do you mean 12 months? So he was like, if you could just give us like a year of like, you know, we brought you on this your first gig. Like, we'd love to have you stick around for another year. I was like, there's no way I'm going to be here in a year. Absolutely not. Um, and so then I told him that I had this other offer. And he kind of, he just, like, offered to match the salary off the, like that, you know, just at the at snap of a finger. And that was, a, I mean, that was a red flag to me. It was like, I don't know much about, you know, personnel management and engineering at that point. But I was thinking, they just must know that they're underpaying people if they're willing to to do things like that, right? That that you have to ask for that pay when and they're so readily willing to give it. Immediately. Yeah, yeah. Immediately, he's he's just going to match it. You know, I thought that was a a red flag. 
what were the were there well, I guess the, the audience like they offered the cash and, and couldn't convince you was there anything they could have offered you to say like more responsibilities money um, no I don't think so I think I was honestly I wanted to be in San Francisco I didn't want to be you know um, down in the peninsula and I just didn't really believe that the company was uh, I mean like I said we were missing sales targets over and over it just seemed like it had stagnated and it wasn't growing so yeah now during this time um, so you've been there total for about two years do you see a change in the personnel that they're bringing in was there like did your opinion your colleagues increase over time or did it decrease or did it just kind of like everyone kind of stayed the same um, I think they would just they would make a lot of the same kinds of decisions so uh, they at one point they brought in someone from like a major like a, a Cisco type company mm-hmm. who had run like engineering there to try to like impose engineering uh, fundamentals and, and processes on the company, which is weird because Cisco is like a, a, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of engineers right. that company has, but uh, to impose that on a company with 40 engineers is, is a little strange. But um, they would bring in like big people who they thought could just, uh, you know, change everything within a span of a few months. Um, in reality, though, I mean, I think it, it's just a very difficult thing for a startup to do to sell to like, we were selling to a lot of local governments. Um, the deals just aren't that big, but they take a ton of time. Um, another thing that we got caught up in that sort of painted the picture for me of like what the problem was with where this company was going was we became, I mean, my product particularly, we made a lot of decisions about what it would be in order to please a very large customer, you know, a, a city that's, you know, a huge city. Uh, we had sold to their government, but most of our customers were like school districts or um, like really small municipalities, and so we were changing the product for this one big deal. But most of our, um, you know, ninety percent of our customers couldn't use the features that we were, were building, um, and so that we became like a dev shop for this one city, and we were just kind of building like a product for them and it just didn't I mean I didn't see how it just didn't make a lot of sense to me gotcha. and were there any major like leadership changes over the time that you were there that were surprising or did leadership stay pretty consistent um, yeah we brought in like one we did bring in like a, a chief product officer who ended up taking on like the role of what the VP of engineering would do I think that was surprising to me because we had this yeah. interim VP for like a really long time but apparently was never able to convince anyone that he should take on that job. So did he stay after this other person was given the role? No, 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 no. He left after that. Yeah. Gotcha. It's interesting. A CPO then taking over the VP of engineering. Um, yeah, it was. It was very strange. Um, and so the, taking on like a lot of the roles of like a CTO. Uh, yeah. So he. I mean, he was basically running the company at that point, but. Um, yeah, I think a lot of engineering management was like surprised by that for sure. Did they feel that they weren't, they didn't have the tech background to be able to be in that position? I think they felt that there were people within the company that should have at least been considered, um, but I don't think that's common. I mean, usually you you search outside for roles like that. For that, yeah, that large of a role. Yeah. Um, when you when you start telling your colleagues that you were leaving, how did people react? Honestly, at this company, it was like, yeah, yeah, no, I get it, I get it. 
Um, it was a lot of that. So I think I feel like everybody. I, it was like everybody you'd have coffee with would be like, "Oh, I think I'm kind of on the way out too. I think I'm going to leave in a few weeks." You know, I've been talking to so and so, and and I've got an offer from them, and and it, that's exactly what happened. I mean, our team was like decimated after the two. So like I said, my sort of mentor left. We actually announced to the team, or our our last day was the the same day. And after the two of us left, I mean, the team was, like, decimated after that. So a lot of people in quick succession uh, left the company. Uh, yeah, so I guess let's get to actually leaving the company at that point. Yeah. So what happened the day that you, you left? Did you – what was that experience like? I mean, it's pretty typical, you know. You don't really do any work. You wrap up your, your laptop. You uh, – uh, say, there's a lot of goodbye coffees, you know. I think we had a we had like a, a place that we would go to to mm-hmm. to have drinks for to see people off. So we did that. Um, yeah, I, there was a weird culture of leaving where like. So this is something that I I took away from that company actually is I think it's really important when people leave a company like that for their work there to be celebrated, mm-hmm. and it for it to be. Like, it should just be known, especially within this industry, that, like, people aren't going to be there forever, you know? So it's not a shameful thing to have to say that that someone's leaving. But at that company, it was very secretive. So we wouldn't mention the people who were leaving. They wouldn't get uh, mentioned. It it was only brought up if someone asked. So if someone asked, like, in all hands, like, oh, hey, what happened to the, the manager of this team, you know? Uh, and then, you know, excuse would be made. So no, no emails would be sent out? or Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Which I, and I later learned, like, that's very common for someone to send, like, a farewell email to everybody. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was very, very, it was all kept under wraps. Um, and I think that was, like, a morale thing, you know, because people knew these people aren't leaving because they've enjoyed their time here and they feel like it's time to move on to something else. They're leaving because they, they really want to get out of here. Um, yeah. Now, did you have stock options at this company? I did, and I did not execute on them. Gotcha. Did, did you consider it at all? or? I don't think I did. I think I what I did is ask the people that I trusted whether they were going to or not. And I, the people that I, I mean, the people that did execute had gotten in much earlier than me and so had been there for four or five years by that time. Um, but I... Only having been there just over a year, like just it didn't make sense to to execute on that. So, do you know anyone who you worked with at that time who's still at the company in the engineering department? Oh man, no, no. I think they, I think it's been like a complete turnover since I was there, and that happened within like six months. I think like the all of engineering was like, I, you know, like I would say within six months. After I left, I think, there was no one left that, or very few people left that had been there more than six months when I left, right? So within a year, span of a year, like, mm-hmm. kind of the whole department turned over. And so given the time that's gone since then, it means the department, departments might have turned over several times at this point. Okay. Maybe. I mean, so what was happening was they were going from a... Uh, a rails, you know, mono- I mean, common story in, in engineering is you've got this rails monolith, and or at least at that time the common story was you want to break that out into microservices, mm-hmm. and a, a very common thing too was we're gonna u- we're gonna do Java micro- microservices, um, and so that's what that's what we were doing. We had brought in like one engineering architect who 
decided this is where we're going and everybody in the company had all this like rails expertise um and so then after that like it was completely unnecessary and so we just kept on bringing other engineers in that that knew java and had done this before um and so we built out microservices thinking that that would somehow solve the problems of the company and they didn't no of course not. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would have solved the problems of the company yeah, I mean, I've often questioned whether it should have been a, a nonprofit. Uh, I think that's the advice that the founders got when they first started, was that this should be a nonprofit. You could take in government grants. Um, like I said, I, I just don't know that it's a it's not a easy place to sell software. Um, there was other things we did to try to make it, like acquire other small government-focused startups. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess some of it could have been management, too. Management could have, uh, like, looking back, it was a very, like, there was just this incredible bravado from the top that just was very uh, off-putting. Gotcha. I feel like at the top, that's part of the requirements of being a CEO. You have to have that, you know, bravado to believe in your company yeah. so strongly and yeah. be able to try and yeah. convince the army that to follow you right you got to be able to convince yourself which is in a way you have to be able to lie to yourself right. you know yeah. about the potential for success gotcha. um so i have a two last questions okay i have one last question after that so uh, uh well i might be stealing one of your questions oh, <laughs> so the, the classic you know if you go back in a time machine to the you know the day you have that offer would you have taken it knowing what you know now yeah knowing what i know now no, I don't think I would. I don't think I would take the job, um, and and the reason for that is that I I think like at that stage in your career, you need like it's okay to join a small company if you're going to get to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of things and like really help build something or nothing into something, right? Uh, or you want to be in a larger company where they've got enough resources to like focus on your development where they have the experience of bringing up a younger engineer. So when you're in this middle area, we were at like 130 or something when I joined, you don't have either of those. So you have a big enough engineering team that like people are, people have their specific roles. You still will get pigeonholed a little bit and you won't get to do a lot of everything. But at the same time, uh, the company's not experienced enough in bringing on new new hires to to really know how to like ramp them up quickly. And so I think you don't get, you get sort of the worst of both worlds. Um, so what I would do is I would go look for a smaller company and just try to try to wear a lot of hats and get a ton of like that early product development experience or join a bigger, you know. Is that what you wound up doing in your next role? I think I made the same mistake twice in a row actually. <laughs> <laughs> until, I had, uh, until I had gained enough experience where I didn't need, you know, the organization to put that much uh, effort into me. Got it. And my last question is, now when people ask you about your time there, what do you say about it? Like your sort of your elevator pitch of your time there? <laughs> I mean, I played a lot of music. Uh, I played a lot of guitar. Um, no, I, I say it was cool. Like, I, I think that, like I said, it was cool being mission-driven. It, it was interesting uh, learning about, like, the government space. Um, but it was my first engineering gig. I didn't need that much out of it I didn't need uh, you know, I just needed to, to learn the, the fundamentals so yeah. it was good for that cool. so when you went down to the music room was, <laughs> it, was it just you playing guitar by yourself or did you did you have other people join you and 
play music with you? Generally, it would just be me. I don't know that I ever saw anyone else use the music room. We did turn it into a nursery, or not a nursery, a um, a mother's room, so mm-hmm. where people can nurse, right? Um, so it ended up being dual purpose, and there were a few times where like I would go in, but there would be like a little sign hung on the door mm-hmm. with a picture of a baby and like a uh, a bottle or something, yeah. Gotcha. I can imagine you had to play lullabies during that time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the mother wanted the privacy, so I was not allowed to use the music room at that uh, at those times. But I think, but the the point is, I think those are the only people that I saw use the music room were nursing mothers. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. No problem. Thanks. So many great stories. Jake, what was your biggest takeaway? I was really grabbed by how companies recruit. Yes, hot sauce. <laughs> yes, hot, yes, there was the hot sauce incident. But I was also thinking of, first of all, it was sold to Michael as a mission-driven company, but yet in the day-to-day, they never really talked about it and didn't really resonate with them. And then the other one that really stuck with me is that they had just gotten a big round of funding. And the reason why this uh, stuck out to me is that I get recruiting emails all the time and, and the recruiters always talk about how much money that the company has just raised. And every time I'm like, wow, they just raised 40 million. Maybe I should go work there. Um, but now I realize that you know Michael left the company and then they still continue to raise money. So maybe the amount that a company has raised is not necessarily an indication of how good that company is. Right, you know, after talking with Michael, my confidence in VCs has certainly gone down. They don't know what is going on down in the weeds. If there's a giant wall separating sales and engineering, or the CEO is secretly self-promoting in a book without informing the company? Could there be anything more psychopathic than making up a story on how you started the company, knowing that it would be published and your employees might actually read it? But you have to consider that being a psychopath Mm -hmm. is a common CEO trait. Sorry to all of our CEO listeners out there. Um, But maybe that helped them raise money. Do you think that tearing down the wall made the quarterly board meeting? We have no growth in revenue, but at least sales and engineering can see each other now. You know, it probably did, but he probably did, like, as you were saying, like in all CEO speak, uh, the phrase is synergy, removing obstacles and barriers, both metaphorically and literally, and operating efficiencies were probably all used. Well, I think that was a heavy episode with a lot of great content, so we'll leave it at that. So check out our next episode, which will air on March 10th, when we interview someone in the world of public relations.